Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. I am Black on the Air. Welcome back to my podcast. I hope you had a, trust you had a good Memorial Day and all that. Uh, oh, my God. Uh, we have a really good show today. I said, oh, my God, because of this whole Roseanne thing uh, that just happened. Um, I'm recording this on Wednesday, the 29th and, or the 30th, and the Roseanne thing happened yesterday. It was amazing. But today on my show, I have... The brilliant writer, one of the exec producers of The Americans, Joel Fields. Um, we had a, The Americans, as I mentioned before, I'm sure I've mentioned her before, is my favorite show on television. Um, I got hooked on it a few years ago. I, I think I missed the first season or two. And then I binged it. And guys, it is an amazing show. And the season finale was last night. You're listening to this. And uh, it was just brilliant. And I got a chance to speak to Joel about the show. And there's so much in it, and it's so funny because uh, all the stuff that's happening with Russia right now. But it's a great show. Check it out if you haven't seen it. Spoiler alert on our conversation. There's some things that may spoil the finale for it if you haven't seen it. But watch the finale and then listen to the podcast is what I suggest. But if you haven't seen the show, who cares? You're not going to remember any of this crap when you finally watch the show, so it doesn't matter. Enjoy. So, guys, uh, whew. on the day when Starbucks takes their employees— <laughs> shuts down, Starbucks shuts down to talk about race. We need a safe space to talk about race. Roseanne goes crazy. She breaks Twitter with uh, her caffeinated, over-caffeinated racism uh, yesterday. Actually, it wasn't even caffeinated racism. It was ambient-induced racism, as she now says, um, which was fantastic. I don't know if you guys followed that. Okay, for the, those of you not following the story, of course, and I'm sure you've heard it, where Roseanne uh, compared Valerie Jarrett, who used to work for Obama in his administration, this is an African-American woman, said she looks like if uh, Muslim Brotherhood and Planet of the Apes had a baby. Very racist statement. Twitter went crazy. She tried to apologize. First, she tried to defend it. She said, Muslim is not a race. It's like, hold on a second. What the fuck is that? You know, Nobody's talking about that. They're talking about the Planet of the Apes part. Like, how blind can you be to your own statement? Then she put out an apology, but ABC was not feeling it, and they canceled the show, which was breathtakingly fast. I had never seen something like that happen that fast. And I think what Roseanne had uh, failed to realize is that the head of ABC is Channing Dungy, an African-American woman. And uh, she was not feeling that at all. And it, one of the things about this, I'll get back to the ambient point, but one of the things about this that I think is significant that I want people to realize is that people think like all racism is like this extreme hatred and virulent and I hate these people and all that. No, 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 no. Some of the most insidious racism to me is what I call casual racism. Like I always say Trump is is guilty of a lot of casual racism. And it's just what it is. It's a very low-key, ingrained opinion about people that you just have, that's just in there. And I don't give a fuck personally if it's dormant or if it's on the surface. I don't care where that lava is. That lava's coming out at some point, and it can do some damage. And this whole opinion comparing black people to apes goes back years. And I can't believe the white people who are who claim to be so innocent about this association and the people who try to make these false equivalencies. You know, well, Bill Maher, he compared uh, Donald Trump to an orangutan. Stop it, guys. 
Just stop it. Seriously, wake the fuck up. How much racism has to have happened in this country for you to forget? How could people forget so quickly the shit that has happened? Black people have been compared to apes since we were brought over here on ships. It was the way to dehumanize us. One of the ways to dehumanize us. And uh, and the fact that African-American women, this is the part that really pisses me off, uh, get this association. And by the way, people were saying this about Michelle Obama. Uh, Roseanne had previously tweeted a similar thing about Susan Rice. Um, you remember a couple of years ago, or last year was it, when Leslie Jones uh, was attacked on Twitter. People called her a gorilla, an ape, and all this stuff. She... She was reduced to tears, man. She was so hurt by all of this. And it's all these attacks comparing her to a, to a gorilla. It was one of the reasons why I told Milo to go fuck himself on, a, on the Bill Maher show, right? So people have to stop acting like they don't understand what this means. They, you really got to stop it if, if, when you're making these false equivalencies. And Roseanne, what's interesting about this whole thing is that this is going to sound weird, you guys. I, you know, and I think Roseanne is crazy, by the way. Um, I think, and when I mean crazy, I mean crazy in the sense that she just has a lot of beliefs that are just crazy, nuts like that. Whether she's mentally ill, people have said, I don't know. I have no idea. People say she might be on medication. I have no idea. I really don't know. But I know she acted horribly when she was doing her original show. She was a monster in that show. Everybody, people that have worked on that show knows that story. She would come up to people and just scream in their face. You know, she had a lot of power in those days, and she wielded it like an asshole. So there's a lot of crazy that that woman is known for, and a lot of her Twitter account has that crazy in it. And a lot of that crazy is you don't know where she's coming from. Having said that, people who know Roseanne know that there is a part of her where she she does seem sensitive to certain issues and that type of thing, you know. And what's interesting about this is that she knows what she did was wrong, right? Like, she didn't try to defend it. She knows what she did was wrong, She's been trolling in those alt-right waters for so long, that bathwater just seems normal. You know, that tepid, rancid, racist bathwater that she's been bathing in. It just seems normal. She's shocked out of her system from it, had to jump out of that tub when, you know, the show gets canceled and everything. And I think something about her actually saw that what she said was wrong, okay? And I know a lot of people may disagree with me or whatever. And what I'm saying is, it doesn't excuse the fact that what's in there is that casual racism, is that deep-seated opinion that's different from a virulent opinion, you know, about somebody. Although this particular joke was virulent, you know, and that's what I mean by that, that tepid bathwater that she's been bathing in. And people have to understand a lot of racism that occurs in this country, you go back to the Starbucks incident, you know, how the police are called minutes after these brothers show up all the wild black situations that have been coming up. A lot of that is is that term that I call casual racism. It's that ingrained opinion that people have. I always said the most racist thing is the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> you know, it's the one benefit that poor white people don't mind getting, the conservatives, is the benefit of the doubt. That motherfucker's racist like a motherfucker. <laughs> and then going back to the ambience, so Roseanne... She really tried to blame it on a lot of things, and it's hilarious to me. Or then she says it like it was the Ambien talking. And Ambien comes out and says, hey, ma, what the fuck? What do we have to do with this? Ambien is not—racism is not a side effect of Ambien. 
No, it is not a side effect of Ambien. Ambien does make you sleepy. And a lot of people have to realize is that there is a sleepiness that occurs within people with casual racism. They are asleep to the fact that this hatred, these years of hatred, is inside there. And it just needs an excuse to come out. And whether it's Ambien, whether it's this or that, whether it's your political views, that shit is in there. And you got to reckon with that. And that's a lot of what America has to reckon with. Yeah, we've changed a lot of laws. Yes, uh, we've come a long way in this country. But there is... There are some things inside of this country and inside of people. And it's not just racism is just one of them. There's a lot of other issues here, too. But that's the issue that is the issue of the day and we're focused on. And I just want people to know that this is part of the way that it comes out. All right. There was another incident yesterday where a white woman who's married to a black man, they have a biracial child, tried to get on a Southwest Airline flight. Woman, like, grilled her for maybe a half an hour. She almost missed her flight because she didn't believe that was her child. Stop it. Just fucking stop it. You know what? Read a fucking book. How about that? Look at the world. What What is this feeling? <laughs> what is this shit? I don't understand that. So anyhow, open your eyes. Open your heart. Yeah. All that stuff. Casual racism, man. I'm going to keep going after that. And by the way, the biggest leader of casual racism and good old-fashioned regular racism, of course, is our, is our president. The Supreme Leader, <laughs> Donald Un Trump. And I'm going to keep going after that motherfucker for all of these things that he says. And I don't care who's his, you know, I don't care uh, what he thinks he's trying to say. He's racist. I'm going to keep calling out, and I don't care what anybody says. There you go. That's my rant for today. Um, all right, guys. This is a, kind of an indulgent episode. It's all about my favorite show, The Americans. And even if you haven't seen the show... I think you're going to enjoy it. Okay? So I'll be right back with Joe Fields. Those connections might have never happened. You never know. Oh, hi, everybody. Uh, sorry, we were just having a conversation. Uh, this is Joe Fields of the Americans, executive producer. Uh, we were going to have your buddy Joe, your your literal uh, partner in crime. My partner in crime, <laughs> Joe uh, Weisberg, is show. sadly not here. Sadly not here, but he is here in spirit. And as I said uh, in the introduction, my favorite show on television. Well, by thank far. you so much. And I missed the first couple of seasons. You know how you get busy and stuff. And I saw it. And I was like, oh, that looks interesting. And then when I finally watched it, it's like, oh, my God. <laughs> Which is great. By the way, out there, I have a couple of things. Before we start a conversation with you, Joan, um, spoiler alert for everybody. The season finale, if you're listening to this on Thursday when we dropped the podcast, it was last night, Wednesday night. Great season finale. It was fantastic. But there, spoiler alert, we may be talking about parts of it. I'll try to be nice. You know, we won't go into – how about we won't go into specific detail? But we'll, you know, we'll discuss – do you or, or just whatever. viewers, hey. Yeah. You know, this is a you know, this is a wonderful podcast. Watch the finale first. Watch the finale first, then listen to the podcast. Yeah. How about that? That I'm sounds in, great. Yeah. But congratulations. Thank you so much. On such a great series. Was it – how many seasons total? Six seasons. Six seasons total. 75 episodes. 75 episodes. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's so different from network television. Six seasons, 75 episodes. Is that about 13 to 15 in 13 a year? every year except for the last year we did 10. 
and I wish it was 15. <laughs> no, and, and I, I wish it had been eight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, 10 was, was what we needed to tell the story. Mm-hmm. But boy, you to know, tell having the story done, of the last season? To tell or the story of the final season. Sure, sure. But uh, boy, having done network, you know, well, you know what it's like. You Absolutely. Go from, you go from network 22, yeah. and then sometimes yeah. they ask for those two more, 24, you, oh, you want to die. Yeah. And then you, then you go to cable, and they do 15. Yes. And you get to episode eight, and you think, oh, wow, I'm, I'm more than halfway done. I can do yeah. this. I think I can do this. Then you go to FX, and it's 13. And you think, boy, this is really humane. Right. And then you do a season of 10, and you think, you know, eight would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Except for people that said, but we want to make the money of 22. <laughs> no, you're right. From a storytelling point of view, you this and it's becoming a new model now this uh from a storytelling but also from a qualitative point of view Mm -hmm. you know we we took to breaking the new season at the end of the prior season Mm -hmm. writing half of it so that by the time we started prep we would have half the season written script form the rest of it broken out outline form and we could rewrite and rewrite and rewrite that's great we did this thing where we would stop the writing process Mm -hmm. at least twice uh, and do what we called a mid-season review. We'd go back, break down every storyline, go wow. through and refine and rewrite, and it just and that's made because you a had huge difference. The, the time to actually do that. That's right. Where yeah. a lot of times you're chasing your tail in the network model because there's so many episodes. That's right? right. So as soon as we and FX did us the great service of always picking mm-hmm. us up early, yeah, and then we would have our writer's room at the end of the prior season rather than the beginning of the next season, which yeah. would just put us ahead. Well, let's jump right in and talk about the writing process since you started there. Um, what I, there's so many things I love about this show, Joe, and I instantly fell in love with it. And one of the things, and for those of you unfamiliar with the Americans and you're jumping in right now, um, it's a show about a couple of Russian spies who are kind of sleeper agents in America. They've been here for, I think, a couple of decades when you picked them up, or a decade and a half, something yeah. like that. And uh, they have a couple of kids. It's middle America. And uh, it o- the pilot opens with an FBI agent who moves across the street. And thus our series begins following uh, the story of Philip and Elizabeth Jennings. And, um, and the story, even though the pilot can be a bit misleading, it can feel like this is going to be an action show. It's really – it opens up to something more than that. It becomes kind of a, a spy thriller but also a domestic drama. In many ways. Is that fair? That's right. It was always yeah. intended to be an exploration of marriage, yes. of identity, of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think it took us a few, a, at least a season, a season and a half to figure out yeah. how to tell the story and what the show should be. I was going to ask about that. I was real curious because, and I can imagine the pressures that are on you guys as a writing I'm going to say writing organism because that's what it becomes after a while, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, to try to. Joe said, he, Joe said he was sorry he couldn't be here, but it doesn't matter because our brains have fused into yes, one anyway. Yes, 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 right. <laughs> I believe that, yes. And you almost have to by yeah. default, yeah. I've, I've seen some of your interviews together. Just the way you guys talk is awesome, too, you know. But uh, many times, okay, just for you people out there who aren't writers but are interested in writing, I always say um, when you first write a show, it belongs to you. But once it goes on the air, it kind of belongs to the audience, and you become a curator of that show in some ways. And you have to kind of listen to the show that you're writing because it also tells you what it is as much as you tell it. Is that fair? You know, And sometimes just the characters do it themselves. You know, But the things you put on page, once it comes to life, you go, oh, that's what it is. Well, it's so <laughs> interesting you say that because yeah. now the finale's aired. Yes. Here, uh, we're sitting having this conversation, and I'm— Done. As of a week and a right. half ago, I approved, we approved the final visual effects and color correction. Done working on the show. 
And looking back on it, this final season, mm-hmm. it's exactly what you're talking about. By the time you get to the final season and then the finale, what mm-hmm. you're experiencing is this narrowing of possibilities. Right. Uh, uh, and the bullseye gets smaller and smaller to, to do it right. Yeah. And at the beginning, you're in the opposite world where you could just go anywhere and do yeah. anything. Yeah. And you have to discover mm-hmm. what what the focus of the show wants to be and where yeah. the drama wants to take you. And the first season of a show sometimes – can be the most fun because it is all about discoveries. You're introducing characters for the first time, storylines for the first times. Your your first big reveals, you know, are always very they're probably so fun to come up with. Do you have any fond memories of that first season of some of those moments? And- well, yes, there were fond memories of the first mm-hmm. season. The first season we were up against a very tough uh air date mm-hmm. and we were just working very hard, a lot of all nighters. Yeah. <clears throat> and I think we also were because we were going episode by episode because we were figuring out the show as we went i think a lot of the spy stories themselves were much more closed ended okay and an right. epiphany we sure. had at the end of season 1 was we don't need to tell these episodes in even these stories in one episode, why don't we take two episodes, three episodes, four episodes right. and tell them? It's not a procedural. And it's not a procedural right. and then we got to explore the character dynamics of all of the the spy stories, and mm-hmm. that just became much more interesting. Yeah. In that first season, uh, I'd say one of the most fun discoveries was realizing how much room we had to explore with Martha. Allison Wright oh, is such favorites. a brilliant actress. One of my and favorites. We knew early on that we were going to do a, a wedding. And this was wow. Uh, well, this was based on a true true story. You know, a lot. How of much this, of the show was based on on a true story? By the way, Larry, but, all the mm-hmm. unbelievable parts, yes. are are based on truth. No <laughs> and everything way. else we made up. So, um, there's a the, the guy who was the KGB archivist, a guy named Matrokin. Yes, he was charged with um, bringing together all of the archives of the KGB before they moved it from Moscow to out of town. Okay. And he spent years uh, cataloging everything mm-hmm. and for, for their files. And then at the same time, he wrote down every detail on little tiny slips of paper and he smuggled it out into his, in his shoe to his summer DACA. Right. And then he uh, defected to the West. So we have pretty much all of it's been declassified now. And you wow. can, you can buy and read, I think it's called the sword and the shield but mm-hmm. by, by, Matrokin, and it's got all these stories of the real illegals in it. Yeah. And one of the things they did was uh, they would send Romeos, they called them, to huh. seduce usually secretaries that had security clearances or of high-ranking men. And one of them wound up marrying uh, one of the, one of the secretaries in Europe, and it was so successful that they sent others to marry other secretaries. They Romeos. actually had a, had a name for it. They called it the Secretary's Offensive. Wow. So – that that's so bananas, right? You couldn't if we had made that up, it yeah. would be too crazy a storyline to pursue. Sure. Yeah. But because they did it, we knew we we had to do it. Right. And so in that first season, knowing we were gonna do that wedding was a key part, but we had also then started to break this whole long storyline that we knew would go many seasons yeah. for that character. But Boy, I really hope you edit this podcast in case I get boring. No, but, are you kidding me? <laughs> but, I'm like uh, a little kid. Yeah, but, you guys can see me. My hands are under my chin. I continue. But one yes. of, so there was this crazy moment in that first season where we did that that wedding, and you right. remember that wedding scene oh, and yeah. the wait. You was, talk about my head is swirling. Did the wedding happen in the first? season? It happened in the first season. I think it was episode. Was it eight or ten? Somewhere it feels around like there. There was so much story that happened. <laughs> I can't believe and, it happened in the first and, season. Um, and the. 
you know, you talk about that world of possibilities of a first season. Yeah. The, the danger of that scene, that the tone mm-hmm. be That's absolutely too right. farcical, too comical, yep. too silly, too serious. You know, it just could have gone so wrong in so many ways. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways in that moment, seeing how our hair and makeup department came together mm-hmm. and our costume department came together and Carrie and Matthew and Allison and Margot Martindale oh, she's so great. found this, this incredible blend of truth in yeah. that scene. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just magic. Well, that is one of the things that makes the show so special. Good for me, <clears throat> even though when I was first watching it, I felt, oh, this show is really about this couple. It's about a marriage, you know. That's what I was thinking. But the more I watched it, the more I realized the show is really about loyalty, you know, on so many different levels, you know, loyalty in the marriage, loyalty to your country, loyalty to your friends is played out beautifully in the finale, by the way. Um, loyalty to your, you know, to your job, <laughs> you know. But Philip's loyalty to Martha, the way that developed, because he was doing a job first, but he actually developed. And his, by the way, his moral conscience, he was kind of the moral compass of that side of the show, I guess, in some ways. you know. But I thought that was so well done, Joe. Well, thank you. you. Know, and I, I felt that's the part that made it really believable to me that he, because if he just didn't care the whole time, like, what an asshole, you know. But the fact he actually had feelings for Martha, it really kept me wondering what was going to happen in that storyline. Well, it's funny. I think of some actors I've spoken to over the years. And, you know, even those actors who are, you're, you're happily married to somebody yeah. else. But if you're, uh, you know, you're in a play with somebody. Mm-hmm. And every night you go and you say romantic things and you caress their face and you look into their eyes and you kiss them. You know, if you do that well, there's going to be some feelings. It happened on your show. It it did. It did, (laughs) apparently. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, those, that, that stuff is real. It becomes real. And you're right. Loyalty, trust. Integrity, how yeah. we communicate, how we connect. Right. Those were all those were all big themes for us. Yeah, and there was conflict in all of them, even from the other side with Stan's character. Um, loyalty to his job, but he had a strong loyalty to the idea of what he was doing as well, which was kind of interesting. Yeah. You know, he always had that, you know, that other eye kind of checking himself, you know. And tell me about working with, with him, with Noah. He did such good work on that show. Oh, my God. Well, first of all, we were blessed with— And by the way, great cast. Amazing, yeah. amazing cast. Just just top to bottom, all of them, and also great human beings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because you've, you've done shows. Makes this a big is, difference. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, just wonderful people and uh, b- just brilliant actors. And working with Noah, I'm, I'm trying to— I'm just thinking back. Uh, I'm not old, but I've been doing this a long time. I'm mm-hmm. trying to think back if I've ever worked with an another actor who is able to do as much with it's, so little yeah. as Noah Emmerich. He, he's just extraordinary. He really you know, is. He, he yeah. with a twitch can mm-hmm. give you a world. He kind of has that little eye twitch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's some. But it's not affected or studied. No, it's it, not. It, yeah. It's just something really, really simple in his, yeah. in what he does. His storyline with Nina, I thought, was one of the most heartfelt storylines. And once again, a story of loyalty. Here's this Russian spy who he ends up having an affair with that almost destroys his marriage, for goodness sake. Yet his loyalty to her is so interesting, you know, and it was more than affection. 
And, and the same with Oleg in, in a different sense. He was having a different kind of affair with him, I guess right. you could say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and once again, brilliantly played by those actors. Oh, my um, God, yeah. Annette Mahendru yeah. was an incredible find. And Costa Ronan. Yeah. You know, we, we decided early on that we wanted to get actors who were not only genuine Russian speakers, but mm-hmm. who, who actually had their dialects right. Yeah. So our poor casting director, Rory Bergman, who's just a, a genius, but she would she would find these phenomenal actors ask them where they were from, check on their That's accents. Hilarious. And then once we approved their performances, we'd send them to uh, our consultant in Russia. Really? Yeah. yeah. And he'd say, sorry, Polish, can't hire him. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You mean his accent sounded yeah. Polish? That's right. Oh, interesting. So, but, yeah. but, what it, but even though we were obsessed with it in what might have been a silly way, we, we felt like we, could, we should be very detail-oriented because we wanted there to be this sort of sense of reality right. in the show. And we felt like if, if we were rigorous about that, even if you didn't know exactly, yeah. that would seep through somehow. Yeah, the Verisimilitude was a great part of the show, too. How much did you have to know about just the FBI at that point? You had, was that also a lot of A lot. We had, uh-huh. Yeah, we had, a, we had a technical advisor mm-hmm. uh, who was an FBI expert. We had a technical advisor, uh, Keith Melton, who's uh, an expert on the KGB and mm-hmm. illegals and uh, one of the founders of the Spy Museum. A lot of the— props that you mm-hmm. saw in the show came from Keith's collection. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, so they were some actual, the actual KGB props. Yeah, the um, <clears throat> the fake briefcase that yeah, was used right, right. in the beginning of, yeah. I think it was season two. Sure. Uh, a lot of the stuff came from Keith's collection. Yeah. So, and then we had uh, an incredible consultant, Sergei Kostin, mm-hmm. in Russia, mm-hmm. who read all the scripts and gave us detail. Like in this last season, you remember there was a flashback where Philip was sitting at his desk, there was a sandwich on his desk. He was mm. struggling with his business. Yeah. And we went to Sergey and we said, we, we, we don't know how to exactly tell you what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. In the United States, this would be kids it, during the Depression who were hungry mm. staring into a diner or mm-hmm. into a candy store or into a cake shop looking at the sweets or looking at the people eating. Right. What would it have been in Russia during that time. Mm-hmm. And he sent us this email with three different ideas, one of which we used, which was the, the guy coming out from the back of the communal soup kitchen right. with, the bowl, with the pot that mm-hmm. had some porridge stuck to it and yeah. giving the pot to the kids and the kids trying to scoop out the remains of the porridge before he washed the pot. Mm. You couldn't write that detail if you, if you didn't have someone who knew the history. Yeah, because you already had the detail... From just the 80s, you know, which is also, that's always a fun thing, you know, to see that type of thing. Well, sadly, that detail, Joe and I got from our youth. Yes, exactly. Which <laughs> that you would did. be memory. Yes, you did very well. Um, I always imagine the show was like, a, like what happened to all everybody else on the hunt for Red October once they were <laughs> in the country? That's what your show was to me in the beginning. It's during that same period. Um, I wanted to ask you this because— when I would tell people about the Americans, and by the way, I told everybody, whenever I talk to people about TV, I said, do you watch the Americans? It's always the first thing I say. And the thing that I always bring up is I say, one of the more fascinating things about your show is that I find myself rooting for people whose job is in the destruction of our country. You know, and like, and I'm fine with that. You know, did you find yourself up against that moral dilemma in the beginning at all or that type of thing? It's interesting. We thought about it mm-hmm. during the first season. 
we would re-break every story season one mm-hmm. and then retell it in the writer's room as if it were the story of CIA agents oh, wow. in Moscow in the 80s mm-hmm. fighting for the cause of freedom. And we said, okay, if deep cover CIA agents who are fighting for justice to free the Russian people and bring liberal democracy to yeah. Russia, if, if those CIA would, agents would do this, then Philip and Elizabeth would do the same thing here, right. fighting for their communist ideals. Um, <clears throat> and we sort of stopped having to do that once we got in sure. to the second season. The only time it became another uh, an issue again had to do with the recruitment of Paige, where we, uh, yes, where we yeah. really started second to think about the second generation program. Yeah. And the thing we thought about there was, okay, well, again, if, if Philip and Elizabeth were deep cover mm-hmm. in the pre-Civil War South, and they were pretending to be plantation owners, but mm. actually they were fighting, they were preparing the way for the North to come in and liberate all the slaves. Mm-hmm. And they had a daughter who had grown up there. Wouldn't they want to bring her in at some point, even yeah. if it meant doing some dark things? Because right. wouldn't they want to pursue what they felt was righteous? So those those were the times we sort of tried to look at it. But to us, it wasn't a matter of really rooting for the other side. It mm-hmm. was... Tr- Letting them believe in what they believed in. Right. And, hey, once you believe something, you'll you'll do whatever it takes. Yeah, one man's terrorist and another man's freedom fighter is what people used to say. But, um, yeah, and it was always kind of interesting because sometimes the the killings were like, oh, oh man, I don't know if I can keep rooting for you guys. I would, I would like to apologize for the suit, was that suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's some of them— uh, Yes. Oh, yes. The suitcase. Oh my God. Uh, the uh, Chicago sequence. Is that what you're talking about? Or? Oh no, no. That oh. was that was this season with the Chicago oh, sequence. Right. That was the axe. Oh, the suitcase. The oh, suitcase. Yes. Annalise in the oh, suitcase. Oh my God. I but in about fairness, that. Yeah. she was dead already. True. And in fairness, there was a suitcase there. There. Well, what are you gonna? Well, <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth did bring the suitcase for that purpose. Right. That's true. <laughs> Elizabeth is interesting. And by the way, Carrie Russell, what a job! And I, I'm gonna say this for bad other too. I am always mad. I don't think your show got enough award recognition and that type of stuff. I don't know if it was an FX thing, not behind up on the radar, but writing, acting, so many things to me should have been winning. Well, like all those years. But thank Car- you. But. Carrie Russell and Matthew Matthew Reese, their relationship on screen was fantastic. But Carrie, man, the job she did to have this um, sometimes just real icy, cold sociopath, and yet she could play these scenes where you really saw her as this caring mom, you know, that type of thing, trying to work on her marriage, you know, that type of thing. Um, was, was she the first one attached to the Americans? Did she come into the project first? So the story is the script was picked up, and apparently there was a big, long— List. This is before I was involved in the project. Uh, there was a long list of basically every actress in Hollywood mm-hmm. who was around the right age to play the part. And right. there was a big conference call. And apparently John Langraff of FX looked over that list and there was a long silence and he just said, Kerry Russell. Really? Yeah. He just knew that would he be He just right. knew it. And apparently he later told Joe, my partner Joe, he later told him that he doesn't always have flashes like that, but every once in a while Mm -hmm. he has a very strong instinct about an actor for a part. Wow. And then she ended up wanting to do it, of course. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Or he had some dirt on her. I don't know. But (laughs) either way, she jumped in with both feet. Right. How did the how did things like the S storyline come about? Was that just something of the time? Because that was kind of oh, well, I wasn't sure where that so was that's going. So that's a right? that's a that's a great writers' room story. You mm-hmm. know, you 
you know, you've been through your share of rooms. Sure. That was that was a great one because you just talk about kind of the ecology of a good creative process. Mm-hmm. In that case, we were just sitting around jawing about how could we find something interesting for Sandra Beeman, mm-hmm. for Stan's wife. And we just felt that we had a great actress and right. we had uh, – we had had some good scenes, but mm-hmm. we felt like she wasn't getting her due. Yeah. And what would be interesting? And we just were kind of lost. We kept trying things, and it, it didn't really go anywhere. And somebody said, you know, at, around this time— She was kind of like Betty Draper. Yeah, some, some ways, yeah. Uh, some <laughs> said that his mother had, uh, had, had been involved in Est, and we started talking about it. Uh, and yeah. next thing you knew, we realized, wow, uh, she would pull Stan to Est. And then, you know, we'd always—we knew we could never get— Philip Jennings to therapy. He would never do that right. both personally and for cover reasons. He'd never go to therapy. But if mm-hmm. Stan dragged him to ask, we could get a lot of the same benefits. Yeah. And so that whole storyline just tumbled out over that season and then yeah. and then just kept paying dividends. And yeah. all, all out of a day and a half discussion about what could we find for Sandra Beeman and people spitballing. Yeah. And even the callback to it in the finale, I think uh... – there yeah, was, yeah. And an interesting callback. <laughs> I guess was the answer here. Yeah. Had you we, gone to S? It's funny, boy. We really we struggled to find that line. Yeah, um, it was really interesting storyline that you had there. A lot of great um, minor characters. Well, not minor characters, maybe side characters, side stories. Frank Langella, oh, Margot Martindale. Yeah, brilliant. Their, uh, brilliant. Their parts were always fascinating. Yeah. Now were those. Uh, based on real positions that Soviet agents had, like those kind of – did you know anything about safe houses and those things? Well, we knew a lot about safe houses, mm-hmm. and uh, it's funny. It took it took a lot of effort to uh, to work on our production design team mm-hmm. because, you know – And I should say – let me interrupt for a second. Yeah. That Frank Angel and Margaret Martindale, if you're not familiar with the show – what would, what would you call their characters? The, you call them the handler. Okay, they were the handlers. So they would they would give information, or they uh, Philip and Elizabeth would meet with them sometimes, and sometimes they would give them advice, just life advice and that type of thing. Yeah. Know? So you know, I think in reality, handlers were probably a less present. Yeah. Than our than I our handlers, uh, but also in reality, there was a lot less killing and a lot less action, a lot less spying mm-hmm. uh, than in our show. But the safe houses are an interesting case in point because you know you been around your share of production designers, yeah. they want to design. Right. But safe houses right, right, right. are undesigned. They are particularly simple. Yeah. And the last thing you want actually is for them to feel like someone lives there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, we always were worried that people would think that that was Frank Langella's house or that was Margot Martindale's apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was it was always tricky getting those those sets right. Yeah. Um, when you, you talked about Paige, the actress who played her, Holly, what's Holly her? Taylor. Holly Taylor did such a good job oh, in that. Oh, my God. Of starting as a kid in that yeah. and then playing someone kind of seduced by the dark side but not quite sure where she was going to end up. Yeah, Leslie Feldman from uh, DreamWorks Casting yeah. found her. And, boy, what a gift because mm-hmm. that storyline was necessary, but it, it would have had to happen off camera mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, without Holly. I don't know how we would have done it. Yeah. But she was just incredible. Yeah. And really grew with the show. Yeah, she really did. You did a jump in time between the second to the last season and the last season? Correct. Yeah, three years. Three years. Okay. So it was 84 to 87? Exactly. So she was in college when we meet her again in the final season. We caught up with her actual age, finally. Yeah. 
exactly. And finally, we didn't have to worry That's about Kedrick yeah. growing two feet over the summer. Oh, yeah, right, right. We, Every year, you'll notice, if you go back and rewatch the show, you'll notice we always kept Henry seated for the first couple episodes yeah, because yeah, right. he had grown so much in between seasons. Yeah. Um, we figured it'd be less jarring for binge watchers. <laughs> yes. Was there a conscious decision not to have him be a part of this? And was that based on anything? Because he never— he, do you think he was suspicious about what his parents did? He he said some things that made it seem like it. But. Yeah, yeah. We just we just thought that was more in his character. Her yeah. character, she in a lot of ways was more like her mother, mm-hmm. and was more plugged into that idealism and ultimately ideology. And he mm-hmm. was in many ways more like his father, yeah. and uh, just more of an American. Right. And you know, we 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 just felt like their their characters would went in those different ways. But also, once Paige was told. Part of the drama of this last season is realizing that Philip and Elizabeth came to an agreement about their kids, mm-hmm. which was that Elizabeth had recruited Paige, but that Henry would be his yeah. and could be left alone. And, you know, you, you saw it in uh, in season five where he, you know, he may not have known what was going on as consciously as Paige did when she confronted her parents, mm-hmm. but he knew he wanted to get the hell out of that house. He wanted yeah. to go to boarding school. Yeah. And the— an interesting storyline had with Paige was when she joined the uh, church. And that was, I thought it was interesting because there's so many thematic things swirling around in there. Well, first of all, that of course the parents are atheists, you know, <laughs> and not only atheists, but are kind of hating on Jesus. Yes, yeah, so what would drive a <laughs> communist <laughs> crazier? <clears throat> yes, yeah, so it was really made me laugh, some of that stuff of the, you know, the preacher and all that were so happy. But I was very concerned during that story letter. Like, are we going to see a slaughtering of, <laughs> of these religious people? Like, what's going to happen there? And was that the same season when you did the um, the uh, uh, Contra Sandinista type of thing? I think that may have been the same season, season three, I believe so. Yeah. yeah I think it was. There was yeah. a lot of uh, history mixing. There was. There. How difficult can that be when you're telling stories, when you have to pay attention to what happened in the world at that time? Or do you just kind of use it as a starting point? I think for us it was actually a help. We we would have a big calendar up on the wall, Mm -hmm. and every episode would be laid over that calendar. So we knew what was happening that day in the world. Interesting. If the characters were watching TV, Mm -hmm. we'd do research and find out what was on TV that night and see what they would have watched. Wow. And and that stuff, you know, you talk about what was happening in South America Mm -hmm. and who that— who that who that minister was and what that church was. Yeah. All of that it was great to have the research was because it based on a certain type of church? Yeah, it was uh-huh. it was ba- it was based on a social civil rights oriented liberal church. The kind yeah. of church that you don't think about today a lot. The kind yeah. of church that was really prevalent back then. Sure, where, where the, the preachers like, "Hey brother." Yeah, hey, bro- <laughs> like, exactly. Like hey brothers. Hey brother. But also yeah. uh, but also raising money for you know, the the people in South America. Sure. And, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, fighting for the things that Elizabeth believed in. I was going to say, ironically, it seems like they'd be simpatico to a lot of those things. Except for that damn God thing. Yeah. Just kind of got in the way. Yeah. What would Jesus do? Appar- <laughs> apparently not spy for Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, not rat him out. Yes. Which was very interesting. Now, that's in... That's, uh, I think, in the finale, right? Or the, yeah. Or the penultimate? Uh, that's in the penultimate? the penultimate episode. That's in episode nine, the beginning of episode nine. Fascinating scene once yeah. again. You're wondering what's going to happen uh, all through that scene. Um, Dennis, who uh, 
was started as Stan's partner. Yes, I think. And Brandon then Durden. Oh my God, what an actor! He did some good work also. Um, and for me, as a person of color, I always look at okay, what are they going to do with the people of color in these types of shows? You know, like what kind of positions? Like what was real? What really happened? Don't cut. Don't kind of send motherfucker. You know, give me the truth. You know, I thought it, that was very real based on his character and what he brought to that part, you know, that he'd be in that position. Yeah. I thought that was good. And uh, and their relationship was kind of interesting, too. Well, his thanks. His relationship. Yeah. There was, um, first of all, he's such a brilliant actor. Mm-hmm. I saw him uh, in Jitney on Broadway. Oh, wow. And, yeah. oh, my God. I was just awesome, awesome performance. And uh, such a great guy. Uh, that uh, it was delicate figuring out exactly how to navigate the mm-hmm. racial dynamics of the FBI. Yeah. You know, well, you, you want to do. The FBI had just spied on Martin Luther King. Just not a, not very long from that date. You that's, know? that's right. And right. there had been a big lawsuit in the FBI right, right around that time. Right, uh, where a bunch of black. FBI agents said, hey, we're not getting promotions, and they were right, and it was worse than not getting promotions. They were being treated really terribly. So, uh, you know, we – it was challenging because on the one hand, you want to do – You don't want to be pandering. You want to be truthful. Well, you want to do a lot of – you want to – you want to have a lot of mixed-race casting. Right. But on the other hand, you want to be true to what the FBI looked like. Right. Um, And – but but his storyline was very very true. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, to how things might have been back then, yeah. we actually we actually tried to put in a few lines about the lawsuit, and it always felt like we were trying to say something. Yeah, and we wrote them a lot and took them out a lot. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to relate if it's off story too. Yeah, it gets caught in there, and uh, yeah, and some of the storylines, some of the some of your storylines are very dangerous. The whole uh, Philip with the young girl yes. storyline, yeah, in the Me Too era, also. You know, here he is with – she was in high school, I think, at the time. Yes, right? she was. And well, fortunately, we made it before the Me Too era. Yeah, uh, yes. And we had an actress – It was just in the Me we had, a, we had an actress who was of age playing the part. Yes. But it was yes. still a I'm very, not trying to get you in trouble. No, no, though. no. It was <laughs> – no, well, but the look, the intention the of the story – yes. The intention of the story right. was for it to be uncomfortable. That's right. And, and in the oh, – look, all the Me Too stuff is done um, – now, when With I say me less, too, I want to explain to the audience. Yeah. When I say me too, we have an older man pretty much seducing a girl in high school. They didn't have sex at that time, I don't think. No, they uh, did not. Not until later, I believe. Not until this season, But yeah. certainly there was a seduction going on there. Big right. time. Yes. Big time. And I, I think what's what's so interesting to me now, having having written it before me too, mm-hmm. is, it, you know, Philip, of course, is very conscious of it because yeah. to him— it's he's outside of it actually. Yeah. He's not the character he was pretending to be was Jim Baxter, yeah. but he's actually not Jim Baxter. Mm-hmm. He's Philip Jennings. Right. So he, you know, Jim Baxter is his puppet, and Kimmy is Jim Baxter's puppet, mm-hmm. and it, that feels terrible to Philip. But yeah. he's got to do his job. Yeah, and it's funny because Elizabeth never seemed to have that type of. Thing. She did once, but it was in a different way. I remember she was uh, sleeping with that guy out of town. It was, I think it was last season. That was always bizarre to me. And when she was sleeping with him, it looked like she was going to throw up half the time. You know? <laughs> uh, I can't remember what happened back then. But uh, the other one I wanted to ask was about Richard Thomas, oh, um, who was so good on the show. So good. I was sad when he went away because he was— you know, that was that was the thing that got me, too, was that I'm rooting for Philip and Elizabeth, but I'm rooting for Richard Thomas, too, because he's so good, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I, I think that's that's great because you're rooting. It's okay to root for everybody. Yeah, ah, that's that's the problem. That's yeah. the problem. And you know, the idea was if we could see them all as human beings, mm-hmm. you, you, you can root for each of them when you're with them. Yeah. Also, Richard Thomas beating up the mail robot was definitely a series highlight for me. Yes, that was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was unfortunate the way that he died, though. That was too bad. Yeah. Although, boy, I went to set that day, and, uh, you know, there was Richard with a big piece of glass sticking out of his neck. Very nice. Some blood coming down. I got some good selfies with I was going to say, did you get yeah, some oh, pictures totally, there? Yeah, oh, totally. Absolutely, have to. yeah. yeah. Have to do <laughs> big smile. Um, how, uh, when did you guys shoot this final season? Uh, boy, when did we wrap? Um, wrapped in March. Mm-hmm. So... Oh, January, very, Feb- very, yeah, January, February, March. Oh, just this yeah. past March. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was just a little while ago. Yeah. I thought maybe you shot it last fall or oh, something no. like that. No. Oh, you went right up to the yeah. last. Oh, no, and- I guess we started, uh, yeah, October, November, December, mm-hmm. January, February. Yeah. And now I read somewhere that you and Joe had the series ending in your minds, like almost from the beginning or at least from the first season. Is that true? End of the first season, beginning of the second season. If he was here, we'd have a little like writer <laughs> marriage right. spat about it, whether uh-huh. it's beginning. But uh, since he's not here, I'm just going to say right in the middle, somewhere right the middle. somewhere, somewhere between end of season one and beginning of season two. But but also it was very amorphous. I mean, we what we had was them going back okay. and, and leaving one or both of their kids behind. Mm. Um, maybe with the remotest possibility that that they, you know, that they had both kids, but it really realistically that they left one or both behind. I think, mm-hmm. you know, the sense of them going back, but with enormous loss. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much what we had. And there's some other pieces as well, but we're big planners. So mm-hmm. at the end of the, really, by the end of the first season, we started creating this document that we called the master document mm-hmm. where we had each character and we had every scene we wanted for their storyline in order, kind of sometimes one-liners, sometimes a paragraph, and every season we'd go through and we'd revise it, but also every season we'd be pulling out from it. Mm-hmm. And then when we got to the last two seasons, we rebroke it into this final document that that held the story for the show. Mm-hmm. And so more and more came into focus then. But we sort of held these two opposing things in our heads, which is on the one hand, we had our plan mm-hmm. and we would follow it. But on the other hand, if more interesting stories presented themselves – we would follow those too. What are you going to do? So when we got to the end and we actually wrote this this final script, we looked at each other with some surprise mm-hmm. that 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 piece of story had stuck. Yeah. Do you ever look back and you, I mean, I'm sure in little ways you do, but do you ever look back and go, ah, God, I wish we had done this instead of that? Well, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I mean, you always— In you little always, ways you kind of do it with in, every, in every episode. You, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know— but by the same token, everything you're learning as you go, mm-hmm. and you can't get where you're going without every step along the way. Right. And it's been a pretty great experience. Oh, yeah. it really has. Yeah. So I I feel much more grateful than I do regretful about any little mistakes we made along the way. Was there ever any thought? <laughs> I'm such a fanboy. Right? It's, so, it's so insane. Were there? This is such a fanboy question. That's why I'm laughing. Were there ever any thoughts of bringing Martha back in the final season? Now this ha- I know you. In the you final had season, to no. Asked this question. No. Yeah. In the final season, no. Yeah. Um, well, actually, oh, we had a moment. We had a moment where we thought she might come back in a flashback. Actually, in the final season, that's all I'm going to say. Mm. But then it just didn't seem right, so we didn't do it. Mm-hmm. But you know. In season five, we had three big scenes with her. 
Mm-hmm. And each of them we thought would be the last time you'd see her. I, we saw so her like in a first grocery we saw her store. in the grocery store, yeah. and we thought, oh my god, what a perfect little coda! <laughs> <Yes>. Oh, you know, <laughs> Olega walk right by, yes. and we'll see her life there. Right. But then we realized there was this big scene that we could play between her and Frank Langella. Yeah. So then we had to write that, mm. and we thought, well, that's going to be the end. Let her say her piece to to Gabriel, and yeah. that'll be a great ending. But then we we thought, well. What would he do for her? Mm-hmm. And uh, and that scene in the park came to us with yeah. uh, with that child. And, yeah. and and once that happened, we felt we were yeah. we, we had reached the end of her story. It had reached its poetic ending. Yeah. yeah. Um, the end of Nina really struck me. That was very emotional. Very. Because there was hope that she would continue, you know. And it, I felt like I don't know if you guys were teasing us or what, you know. But it was almost like a fake out, and then no, sorry, this—that's as far as it's gone. That was really an interesting episode, um, and I, I, what I wanted to ask about. Well, first of all, I thought it was written brilliantly, but the way in which she was killed—was that poetic license or was that observed? Remember at the beginning of our talk, I said everything, the yeah. craziest things, are exactly yeah. as they were, down to the burlap. Mm. cloth that the body was taken away in, Mm -hmm. that was the way they would execute spies in the USSR. And interestingly, they did it because they thought it was more humane. Mm. So in our system, you get appeals and you wait for the governor and you get a final meal and then you get to wait for the phone call and then then they tell you it's been granted, but now you're going to wait two days and there's a whole process. And in their system, they had these, a couple of these secret... uh, squads mm-hmm. who who were charged with this and you were constantly being moved from cell to cell and prison to prison so they told you you were being moved mm-hmm. walked you down a hallway to a desk read their read the sentence and then shot you in the back of the head before you could think about it too much and mm-hmm. they had people standing next to you because they knew your knees would buckle right as the sentence was being read mm-hmm. and uh, that's that's how they did it wow we actually read about one of the squads that made the uh, the Perpetrators kneel before they were shot, mm-hmm. and everybody on that squad was fired because the up the higher ups felt that was demeaning and that was not their job to demean the person that they were executing. Wow, and to me it almost seems like a quiet demeaning the whole time that this death by attrition almost before you even get shot. Well, know? it was not good. It no, was not it a was good not experience. Good. You the, knew it was you coming. Know, the, yeah, being yeah, yeah being being. Things didn't go well for her. But then again, boy, Nina had so many opportunities. She did. She did, yeah. And, and that was part of what was so fun about writing that story is mm-hmm. there was such transformation for her. Mm-hmm. What did the character Oleg, uh, who was so good, um, did he represent anything to you? Was he based on anyone? Because it's, I mean, he seemed to be kind of a double agent, but not really. He seemed to kind of be a, a rogue agent, like almost on his own in some ways. And yet he was almost this, uh, like a Chekhovian character in some ways, like I'm watching the cherry orchard. <laughs> 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 you know? Well, we did think a, a fair amount about Russian literature, yeah. uh, but uh, he wasn't based on any particular character, uh-huh. although the character comes out of the history. There were these children mostly sons of the of the of diplomats up, or the or upper class the upper there. class right, right, right even though they weren't supposed to have an upper class they did yes. and uh those sons were real favorites and got plum assignments like being able to go overseas in the KGB mm-hmm. and they would often show up and kind of sit around and 
screw around while everybody else did their work and get yeah. promoted, but but he wasn't like that. Where did you shoot those scenes, the Russia scenes? So uh, in season five, we actually went to Russia mm-hmm. and shot some of the scenes in Russia. Yeah, there was some footage of Moscow and that kind of yeah. stuff. But for the most part, was most of it Most of it was, well, what we did is then we had a relationship with a, with a camera crew over there. So they mm-hmm. would shoot plates. Right. <laughs> and we had this complicated process with <laughs> plates in Russia, plates in D.C., plates right. in Chicago, where we would shoot the plates, shoot here with or without a green screen, CGI to lay the shots in, and then we'd have to do research on what buildings were not there in the 80s mm-hmm. and then do further CGI on the shots to remove the non-period appropriate buildings. Right. How much CGI is done on the show? For a fair amount. Yeah. Um, a fair amount, though it's a, a you know, basic cable show, so we uh, yeah. we also had to and you try to keep be those, careful about it. You try to keep it simple anyway, I'm sure, in the shooting of it Yes, and in the setup of it. Um, you know, our, our great nemesis was SUVs <laughs> because if there's even in the deep, even a deep focus in the background, yeah. man, an SUV was not going to be there in right. 1987. Yeah. That's when the, we were in the, especially in the early eighties, the heyday of those Chrysler K cars, those types <laughs> of things. Those things were everywhere. My the, parents actually had a Pinto. Yes. The parents would say Pintos <laughs> and Mazdas. Oh my God. My parents' cars. station wagon. Datsuns. You know, with the, with yeah. the wood paneling. Yeah. yeah. Datsun B210 oh, cars. Yeah. I read all that kind of stuff. Remember when the Cadillac Seville first came out with the cool trunk? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah. Caddy had a nice car back then actually. They, they stay, some of the cars were ridiculous. Like, Lincoln was out of control. I oh, my God. They were, like, two blocks long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, let's talk about the finale a little bit. Um, the uh, We were talking about this before we, um, we started. We were outside talking about it because I couldn't wait to talk to Joe. <laughs> I got to ask you this. Um, beautifully written. Thank you. Congratulations. Um Please watch it, you guys, if you've you gotten this far in the conversation. Watch it again, by the way. Um, my favorite scene was the scene in the um, underground parking structure. I thought that was such a beautiful scene. You guys have to get nominated for an Emmy for this episode. And the reason why I say this is because it's completely about their relationship. It's not just a scene about the plot. you know. And that, to me, is good writing. It goes beyond the immediate plot. Yes, anybody can write the scene about... This, the conflict that's happening there. These two people are, are about to be taken away. But this scene is about so much more than that. It's it's about Stan and Phil and the things they've gone through and and who they are as people. And, and it even reveals this interesting thing about Stan, you know, that I didn't really, honestly, didn't see coming. Tell me about... Writing that scene, how hard was it? I think you said you you guys rewrote it a couple of times. Well, we knew, we knew. And I'm that trying that, to be general. See how I'm being kind of okay. general. Yeah, now, see, I, yeah, I'll see how how general we can yeah. be. But that, that you definitely might want to pause this if you haven't seen the yes. finale. Yes. Okay. Yet. So, spoiler alert: we're going to talk about this scene from the finale. Okay. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as I said before, we we worked more on that scene than yeah. any other scene mm-hmm. we'd written for the show ever. Uh, so much time, so many drafts. Yeah. And we knew we knew that scene was going to be in there. And in a lot of ways, we knew the whole success of the finale would hang on the success of that scene. Correct. Which really meant that the whole success of the season and of the show. Whole credibility of it. Yes. And look, that's 
the, there they were. All the fundamental relationships yes. of the show were there together in that garage. And it's problematic to have Paige there from a writing point of view. It, it was problematic, yes. but it was also uh, – but it was what it was. Yes. And uh, well, we, always, we always tried to follow in our heads this sense that if this were real, mm-hmm. if these were real characters, what would they be doing? Mm. And Paige would have been there. Yeah. And – you know, we also – it was okay for her to be there silent in a chunk of the scene because Paige wouldn't have said anything. Mm-hmm. And then when she did, you know, what she said was really not only true to what she said, but uh, but set, to us said a lot about her relationship with her mother yeah, and her relationship with her brother mm-hmm. and, well, and with Stan and with um, and with her father. That basically covers it. Um, and, the, and she gives the admonition to Stan, right, to – to she does take care of Henry. Yeah, or, she does. Uh, I mean, <laughs> what are you going to say? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, what was it? When was that scene? Uh, this is kind of a technical thing. Did you shoot that early in the process? Later? Uh, in the that was. That was. It feels fair, like fairly deep into the process. Yeah. And boy, that was. You know, that was that was a day. You know, we woke up early. We went out to the set. This uh-huh. is garage, and uh, you know, kind of the northern. Uh, tip of the city was I think we were near Fort Tryon Park mm-hmm. and uh, we're down in this garage and they they run through the scene and Noah just turns to us and he says it just seems it feels so weird to be standing here with a gun pointed at them and to say it's over because mm. uh, there we were after all those seasons yeah but you know that scene in addition to a, a just an a, amazing acting achievement for all of those guys, mm-hmm. I thought it was incredible what Chris Long, our director, did in that scene. Mm. Because to take those, and that's a 12-minute scene or so, mm-hmm. 12 pages, 13 pages, basically to accept that the blocking is going to be what it is, which is mm-hmm. very simple. Right. To not get a steady cam, to not do anything fancy with the camera. There's no mute, there's no score. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot of trust mm-hmm. in the moments and in the actors. Yeah. Well, but- how did the did you guys have a table read for we the did line? yeah we we did okay. table reads for every episode so, so actors got to weigh in at that time because it seemed like Matthew and Elizabeth were they producers on the show or uh, no no but, we but, didn't have any actors who were producers did on the Matthew show. direct some episodes he, Matthew directed That's some episodes yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah I always thought the real actorly episodes are the ones he directed <laughs> <laughs> he's a great director yeah. great actor great director so, actors make terrific directors so oh of course they do yeah and in, I'm sure they must have discussed that scene or talked about it they before did you, but uh, mm-hmm. you know I think the key thing to us about the read-through was as obsessed as we were with that scene, mm-hmm. we felt good about where we were going into the read-through, but we weren't yeah. sure. Right. And oh, I remember okay. I remember sitting in there in the read-through a little nervous. And it was like watching watching Noah and Matthew mm-hmm. and Carrie and Holly. It was like watching these Formula One race car riders, mm-hmm. t- drivers take taking the scene out. And going at about 80% of what you knew they'd go at, sure. you know? And you could just see them taking all the turns, mm-hmm. and they finished the scene. And I just looked over, and I saw Joe looking at me, and we, we exchanged a look. We're going to be okay. We're going to be okay. This is going to work. <laughs> um, you know, thanks so much for being here, Joe, by the way. Um, it, oh, thank you. I, as I, mean, I told I you, I'm, for, a, I'm a, a fan of the podcast, a long-time fan of yours. I have to tell you guys. Uh, my wife and I were, I told you, early yes. adopters and obsessed with Insecure. Oh, thank you so much, Loved. Tim. I mean, 
Um, I can't take, I can only take credit for birthing it, but they're well, doing a great job over there. Um, but I appreciate that. Thank you so much, anyway. But um, but I just have to say again, you guys, if you haven't seen The Americans, please, please go see it. Well, it's um, essentially Benji. ruined for you now if you've no, listened to yeah, this whole podcast. That, but that's okay because you forget about it. once you started all this. Because I've done that before. I've listened to things. Well, that's true. I think it was. Uh, I don't even remember what it was. It might have been. Um, what was the? No, I can't think of the name. But I listened to some stuff. But then I went back and forgot all that crap. I was watching it because you don't know who the people are. You really don't know. You know. Um, any things um, stick out to you as really favorite things or fond memories of it or something between you and Joe or that type of thing? Uh, you know, uh, well, uh, yeah, I'll say two things and they're related. One mm-hmm. is uh, is the way my relationship with Joe progressed. Mm-hmm. You know, we How were, did it start? We, so we were really thrown into this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, uh, he had written this pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it got made. It got picked up. I had read the script and loved it. Mm-hmm. And I had told my agent – that I, I love, I happen to love that script. I mentioned that, but I, what I, the main thing I said was, I've been, uh, I've run a series of shows. I want to take a year off. I want to develop. I, I do not want to go on another <laughs> show. Yeah, so yeah. of course, uh, been there, done it. Yeah, yeah. So Joe Cohen from CA calls and he says, and we've, and my wife and I just moved into a new house. We're literally unpacking right in Studio mm-hmm. City, and he says, um, you know that uh, that that show you said you loved, you know, has been picked up, and they they, you know, but. Yeah, it's going to be in New York. You probably wouldn't do that anyway. You, you don't want to do that. He knows just how to bait the hook. You know. Yeah. I turned to my wife and I said, "Remember that script? I said I I loved it. It's it's going to be New York. You know, would we do that?" And she just shrugged and said, "Yeah, sure." Yeah. So um, next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Joe and we're talking about writing some new scenes for this pilot and mm-hmm. doing reshoots and uh and he was in the CIA at one point he he had early been in, in, his, he had early early in his early in his life he had mm-hmm. been in the CIA so he had a lot of knowledge of that mm. world and also i think emotional knowledge of mm-hmm. it from the people that he talked to and what it was like to be a spy and what it was like to live with mm-hmm. lies mm-hmm. um you know but we you know, a lot of people told us that we were similar personalities, that we'd like each other, that we could right. trust each other. Awesome. But that first season, we spent a lot of time working on our relationship, working on our process, taking time out of the, uh, the foxholes. That's right. Yeah. And talking about, okay, how are we going to trust each other? Mm-hmm. How are we going to communicate with each other? And now, you know, here we are uh, having done six seasons together and, you know, we're now writing partners, producing partners. And, oh, great. and have a great uh, relationship. And, and by extension, you know, you— Really, the the big thing I'd say about favorite moments of the season is, of 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 the show is just the people. Mm-hmm. You know, we just collected this incredible group of people mm-hmm. who made the show together. You know, That's it's awesome. not me, it's not me and Joe, it, Carrie, Matthew. You know, from the casting department, the cinematographers, mm-hmm. everybody. You know, just did so much yeah. and it was just a great process and a great collaboration and I'll miss that. Yeah, it becomes a family that you you're so used to seeing all the time. I remember Bernie Mac show, people I worked with, God, it's almost twenty years in some it's like eighteen years. I see them and it's like, hey Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean it's like yeah. old family or yeah. that type of stuff. Yeah. Um one last thing. The minute I saw Renee on the screen, I called that shit out. I said she is an agent. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm like, I called it out. I said, I don't, I said, I, I just, she has to be. She has to be. And this is, this is one of those spoilers, you guys. Damn it. If Phil, 
He says that thing at the end. I'm saying the character's name, right? It is Renee, right? Yeah, Renee. Yeah. yeah. Stan's girlfriend, right? Or mm-hmm. did he marry her? They're married. They're married. Happily, okay. happily. Well, they were Come happily on, they were happily married until Philip dropped the bomb. But you, Who knows how it's going to go now? But Philip kind of put it like, he said, I don't know if it's true. He doesn't I mean, know. It might be. He kind of had spidey sense. Like, I had spidey sense yeah. when I first yeah. saw it. Philip's just like you. You're just like Philip. So tell me. Is, is Philip right, or what's going on there? Or is that our spinoff? I, I, I have no comment on any of that. I have no comment on any of that. And I'm supposed to ask you this question. Um, will there be an Americans movie? Not to my knowledge. Come on. Page. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, Page very long Henry. movie. It's a 75-episode movie. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, Joe, thank you so much oh, thanks uh, for, for being me. here. Please give Joe uh, my best. And, guys, go binge the American. If you've seen it, binge it again. I'm actually going to binge it again. We're going to start from season one and go through it again. Something to do this summer. Oh, there you go. Why not? Congratulations, and uh, I hope you guys get some Emmy love this year. That'll be awesome. That'll be very nice. Joe Fields, the Americans. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. 